You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Markus Hippip. Coming up on today's programme, Vladimir Putin blames the West for provoking the war in Ukraine and escalating it in his State of the Nation address. Forty people have died from mudslides and torrential rain in Brazil over the carnival holiday. We check in with our Latin America correspondent. Here in the UK, independent TV network Iran International suspends its operations following threats against its London-based journalists. And then... I think for Slovenia, being a a small country, but uh, with an ambition, we can really also in the UN Security Council maybe easier bring different positions together. We'll hear from Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs as she outlines her security priorities for the country. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been speaking about his country's war against Ukraine in a State of the Nation address. In this speech, he focused most of his anger on the West, which he said wanted to use Ukraine as a battering ram to undermine Russia. Joining me for more is Stephen Diel, Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Welcome back to Midori House Studio One, Stephen. First of all, the, the speech was almost two hours long. Is that a long time for a Russian leader? Quite short, really. Um, Many things that Putin does remind us of uh, Soviet practices. And in Soviet times, it wasn't unusual at the Congress of the Communist Party for the leader to go on for maybe over three hours. Um, It was also very reminiscent of that time because uh, it was interrupted by uh, applause and standing ovations, um, which, again, was uh, was par for the course. You would read in Pravda the next day on the full account, and at certain points it would stay, you know, uh, excited applause, everyone stands up. Well, they're following a pattern. Now, how predictable was this speech? Did we learn anything new? Was anything surprising? Generally, it was very predictable. The one thing which um, perhaps raises an eyebrow is that um, Putin has said that Russia is pulling out of the, um, or suspending its participation, exactly, in New START, the arms reduction treaty, nuclear arms reduction treaty with the USA. Um, However, it's not shock horror because the Americans said, well, actually, the Russians have been violating the terms of the treaty, which was first uh, signed in 2010 and then renewed in 2021. They said they they, they violated it because they haven't allowed inspections anyway, which is a crucial part of the treaty. It's no good saying we're going to limit the number of warheads on each side if you don't allow the other side to come and check how many you've got. Mm. Were there any key takeaways? Did we get a better understanding of, of, of how Putin wants to continue the war in Ukraine? By force. That's, this is the extraordinary thing. Not only does he say that it's all the West's fault and that the West started it, which, of course, is total nonsense. He's the one who put um, 130,000 initially, 130,000 troops on the border with Ukraine and then on the 24th of February last year sent them across the border without provocation. Um, but he, you know, he says the West has started it and we will use force to stop it. Um, It really is a parallel universe, and it shows to me that Putin is in a corner. 
Uh, he's been, you know, he, it hasn't gone the way he expected. When he invaded almost a year ago, he expected this operation to be over in days, if at most weeks. And of course, it all went horribly wrong for him. His, uh, his, his intelligence on the situation in Ukraine was very poor, completely wrong. People did support Zelensky and the government. Ukrainians are prepared to fight for what they see as their, is their country. And of course, his own army has performed atrociously compared to what he thought they would do. So, Ever since then, he's been trying to play catch-up and trying to put a brave face on it. This speech should have taken place in December, but just before that, there were some real losses on the battlefield for Russia, which means it was postponed. So it's now taking place two months later. He's trying to put a brave face on it. Um, if you are completely immersed in Russian propaganda, maybe you would have watched it and thought, well, maybe he's right. If you can see the bigger picture, it's just like trying to paper over so many cracks. Now, Stephen, there has been a lot of talk about how, how Vladimir Putin has surrounded himself with just a handful of yes men and yes women who may be too scared to give him a correct picture of how badly the war is going for Russia. What was your impression from today's speech? Do you think Putin understands the situation? That is a very, very good question. And none of us really know, to be honest. Um, you know, is he just bluffing? Has he talked himself into a situation where he believes everything he's saying? We know that those around him, just as the intelligence people in Ukraine before the war started were telling him what he wanted to know, those around him tell him what they think he wants to know. So they try and talk it up. Um, there is one key figure, you mentioned women as well, Elvira Nabiulina, who is the finance minister, um, There have been suggestions that she is actually against the war. You know, she sees the damage it is doing to the economy, despite him trying to talk that up again today. Um, but, of course, she's there. She was there at the at the speech and standing up and applauding at the right times. It's that is so it's so much like under Stalin that, you know, no one dares go against the leader. So it is quite possible that his time in the bunker during COVID, when he was shut off from the world as, as much as he could, um, and the way in which his cronies have, have butted him up since have made him think that the world looks rather different but certainly if you can see the bigger picture um he, he really just looks rather foolish how strong did he seem considering that obviously this speech was very much directed to a domestic audience is this what russians wanted to hear and see on tv those who believe the propaganda yes um and it's very difficult now to know who they are um In, in very general terms, the older generation, those who grew up under Soviet under the Soviet Union, tend to support him more. The younger generation, who have enjoyed the fruits of, of a, a more liberal Russia since the breakup of the Soviet Union, and are now seeing their iPhones disappear because they can't get a new one, um, they they tend to be rather more resentful. Um, but uh, you've you've so you've it's difficult to see exactly who supports the war in Russia now. But for those who do still support it, those who put on the blinkers, just maybe through no fault of their own, have access only to Russian television and Russian government-dominated media, they will have felt rather comfortable. And yes, well, this is you know this it's good to see the president. And of course, the thing is about Putin, he is a very good actor in so much as his years of training in the KGB meant that he has the classic poker face. Um, he has eyes that reveal almost no emotion at all um, most of the time and so he is very good at putting on that face and appearing strong whatever he might be thinking inside 
Now, the message of the speech was that Putin is not backing off anytime soon when it comes to Ukraine. But how much can you tell us about the international reaction to this speech? How much have we heard so far from, say, the US or, or Ukraine? Um, we've almost heard laughter from the US uh, because they've heard these lies before that it was the US who was behind Ukraine to start it all in the first place, which is total nonsense. So they're saying, you know, look, the, the initial reactions we've had from the US, have, uh, from, um, from uh, not directly from President Biden, but from advisors and people close to him, are, well, you know, this is, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, this is nonsense. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they've already said, well, you know, they say they're pulling out or suspending their participation in the start talks. Well, they've violated them already. Uh, so there is not a lot of no surprise at all, really, from, from the, in the Western reaction so far at what was said. Stephen Deal, thank you very much for joining us today. It's 12.09 here in London. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Rescuers are searching wreckage after two new earthquakes of magnitude 6.3 and 5.8 struck the southern Turkish province of Hatay and northern Syria, killing six people in Turkey. It comes a fortnight after larger quakes killed more than 47,000 people and damaged or destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes across both countries. The founder of the Wagner Group has accused the Russian defence minister and the chief of the general staff of depriving his fighters of munitions and trying to destroy Wagner, actions he said were equivalent to treason. The defence ministry has so far not responded to the comments. Russia's space agency has said that the crew stuck on the International Space Station because of a damaged capsule are now expected to return to Earth in September, a year after they first launched into orbit. Three astronauts were scheduled to return home in the same spacecraft, but it began leaking coolant in mid-December after being hit by what the US and Russian officials believe was a tiny space rock. And the world's largest ever trial of a four-day working week has been hailed a success, with most companies involved opting to continue offering a shorter week. 61 companies across different sectors in the UK took part in the trial, which ran from June to December last year. Working hours were reduced to 32 per week, with no reduction in wages. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Lillian. We continue now with a roundup of the biggest news from Latin America. Joining me on the line from Montevideo is Monaco's Latin America Affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott. Lucinda, good morning to you. Good morning, Marcus. So, obviously, a few minutes ago we talked about Putin's speech, where he talked about Ukraine as well, and ahead of the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you've been looking into Latin America's curious position during the conflict. No government has agreed to provide weapons to Kiev, for example. Tell us more about how this conflict is being viewed where you are. So, so the U.S. made a, a tempting offer recently to Latin American nations saying that if they donated their aging Russian-made military kit to Ukraine, Washington would replace it with superior American weaponry. And far from taking up this U.S. proposal, which was revealed in January, leaders up and down the continent here have lined up to denounce it, with Colombia's President Petro being perhaps the most outspoken, saying that even if they ended up as scrap in Colombia, the country would not hand over Russian weapons to be taken to prolong a war. And he said that they, the Colombians and his Latin neighbors, were for peace. And so while most governments have strongly condemned Russia's attack on Ukraine in Latin America, 
they fundamentally disagree with Washington and with London and Brussels on how to end the war. They argue that the emphasis should be on an immediate ceasefire without any preconditions rather than supplying arms. And so, so yeah, this is a really interesting one to follow and in line with kind of other developing regions that we've seen around the world who haven't decided to send aid or arms to the conflict. Do you think this position is likely to change? Do ordinary people in Latin America feel the same about keeping out of the war as their leaders? I think unlikely. I mean, you have to also see the economics of this. You know, for some of the bigger nations like Brazil and Mexico, they rely on Russia as a, as a trade partner, in particular for things like fertilizer for their crops. Others are more loyal ideologically, you know, pseudo-socialist allies like Cuba or Venezuela. And there are others in the case of Chile or where I am in Uruguay that have negligible trade with Moscow. I think Russia ranks number 12 of, of Chile's top partners. But what they do all have in common is that these Latin American nations have been hit hard by increases in global fuel and fertilizer prices since the war began. And they all want to see the fighting end as soon as possible. And polls show that Latin Americans agree with their leaders. About 70% of those in the region polled by Ipsos last year claimed that their country could not afford to lend financial support to Ukraine, given the current economic crisis in the region. So there's no political incentive, really, for any of these leaders to send arms or to be perceived to be getting involved and making gestures of of aid and such like we saw Biden do yesterday. Now, turning to another story making the headlines also here in Europe, it's been been quite a sad start for the carnival holiday season in Brazil. At least 40 people have died from mudslides and torrential rain in the country. What is the latest? How much can you tell us? Yeah, so these are truly tragic scenes coming out of Brazil on a very important long holiday weekend. President Lula last night said that homes should no longer be built in areas at risks or at risk of, of landslides and, and major flooding. Several dozen people have also been declared missing as well as the death toll reaching 40. But now part of the reason people actually build there is because land is cheap. You know, the nearest satellite coastal town is often lined with sort of luxury beachfront homes. And so the areas on the side of the hills are often closer to their places of work than anything more affordable in the interior of the state. Um, And these floods in coastal areas of Sao Paulo and further south are the latest in a series of such disasters during the rainy season. But this is another test for Lula, you know, how the president deals with this, how quickly. Um, He was also hoping to increase the minimum wage this month. Let's see what he can get through con- Congress. But again, this is this is affecting the poorest in society and many who were his big supporters in the election in October. Well, on a slightly lighter note, this carnival comes to an end tomorrow on Wednesday. But actually, it isn't only celebrated in Brazil. Tell us about what's happening in, in other countries in your region. So there are different carnivals of different sizes throughout Latin America, Brazil being the most famous, but also in Argentina, in parts of Colombia and in Uruguay. Many people don't know this, but Uruguay's is the longest running carnival in the world. It started weeks ago in late January. So you really have to have stamina. Um, And it's centered today really around a parade that's televised. It's a competition much like in Rio and the llamadas or the calls in Montevideo. These were originally street performances in the more humbler parts of the capital and and now charge for people to watch 2,000 drummers 
um, take to the streets and it's a real highlight. I'd say it's more orderly than anything in Brazil. I think that's probably just the sheer numbers here. There are, there are fewer than two billion people in Montevideo. Um, but it's one to make the effort to visit and is a festival that really mixes the dance and music traditions from Brazil and, and from Argentina. So yeah, it's not all about the Brazilians. Have you had time to celebrate? I have actually. I, I I enjoyed this weekend watching some of them the live um, shows from the Teatro Verano. It's as well worth it, and and actually not too hot either, um, and no no flooding. <laughs> Excellent, Lucinda Elias in Montevideo. Thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to the briefing on Monocle Twenty Four. The concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle Twenty Four and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. It is 21.18 in Tokyo, 14.18 in Helsinki and 12.18 here in London. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Here in the UK, the Persian language TV channel Iran International has been advised to move out of their London studio by counter-terrorism police due to the high level of threat against their journalists from the Iranian state. The independent TV network suspended broadcasting from its site at the weekend. Since November, the West London studio has been heavily guarded after the MI5 discovered what it described as severe and credible death threats against them. The station will continue to operate from its offices in Washington, D.C. Joining us now with more is Adam Bailey, lead media liaison at Volant Media, which owns Iran International TV. Adam, welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us what has been happening over the last weeks and months? Well, as he said, we had to suspend operations, but we didn't suspend broadcasting uh, over the weekend because of the threat level against our staff in Chiswick Business Park and the police who have been um, guarding us very effectively since November with armed response vehicles and barriers. Um, they do have to consider uh, the other people working in the business park. I think there are about 10,000 working in all, not just uh, Iran International. Um, and so we were advised that uh, we suspend the actual operations, which doesn't mean we shut down. We just carry on working from home and all the technical stuff is still done through the studios and we broadcast from our studios in D.C. So there's no interruption to what we do. How did you experience the threat and how well do you know who was threatening your journalists? Well, 
the, the we live with a level of threat, um, really, since we sort of began in 2017, but it's sort of gone up massively uh, because of our reporting of the unrest. You know, we are the principal source of news for people in Iran um, because we're editorially independent and uh, there's no such thing as that coming from within that country. Um, so the level of threat's been severe and the head of the IRGC, Brigadier General Salami, went so far in October saying, we're coming from you and uh, we're coming for you rather, um, and threatened staff with kidnap, uh, all sorts. And there were death threats issued against two senior journalists of ours. Um, so that was it really. Um, that's the kind of level of threat we're under. And it just increased massively till it's not as though the police can't contain it. It's just the practical way of containing it, you know, so that we can carry on and other people in the area aren't threatened. Exactly. Do you, do you think do you think this station is an individual case or is this just an example of how the Iranian regime is trying to wage war against independent media outlets around the world? I think the the just what you said i think it is part of um, a campaign to uh, intimidate and threaten um iranian journalists dissidents i mean we're not a, a dissident uh, organization we're not a political organization in any shape or form um well we're part of um you know we're not we're we are a, the news source along with bbc persian radio fada Voice of America and the Iranian authorities um, would dearly love us not to be, as it were. So obviously, you've been feeling these threats for for months already. How was yeah. all that reflected in the discussions you had in the in the editorial floor, for example, about how to continue and how you can keep yourself safe? The question we have um, we have a a director of security um, uh, who is and a, and a big team who are responsible for our safety, apart from the Metropolitan Police, our internal safety, if you like. Um, so people are well-trained, well-looked after. You know, no one is allowed to flounder around without being aware of risk and so forth. Um, but I mustn't exaggerate that. People didn't, didn't move around thinking they're about to be hurled under a tube line or anything like that. People are careful, cautious, Um, it limits what people can do. You have to be careful going to gatherings and so on. But people don't live in a sort of state of fear, cowering behind doors. Um, and it didn't really affect anything editorially. I mean, it's something we're all used to. And it doesn't really affect our editorial decisions. You know, we don't think, oh, we can't do that because it'll increase the risk or we can't do this because, you know, um, it's the wrong thing to do in case we upset someone. Um, the very nature of reporting from Iran means you're going to upset the Islamic Republic authorities. How big of an operation was it for you? Obviously, as you mentioned already, many of your staff members are working from home at the moment and also more operations are happening, taking place in Washington, D.C. How, how big of an operation was it to, to move some of further operations to the U.S.? Well, we've already got a big setup in in DC. You know, we've got studios there. We've got our, our sister channel, Afghanistan International, there as well as our own. You know, it's a pretty big operation. We've several of our presenters are there now from London doing that. 
a few ancillary staff uh, flown in as well. Um, that's quite a big deal because, of course, it's short notice. But as I said, there was no interruption to service, if you like. Um, and then there's some issues with technical equipment, not big issues, but you have to make arrangements for people to work at home. Though, if you you know remember the lockdown people worked at home quite successfully and we're just in a way it's a bit like the lockdown there's an awful lot you can do because of modern technology from home output editing editing you know and the actual news gathering stuff is uninterrupted we have reporters around the world in the field um assigned from london in the field and they just carry on very important work. Adam, just finally, what are your final thoughts? Do you think there are any lessons that should be learned from all this, what you've gone through? Well, I think the final thought came yesterday with um, the security minister in Britain, Tom Tugendhat, making an extraordinarily strong statement, not only of support for this channel, but for other Persian media. In fact, for all, all media in the UK, for press freedom and the freedom of people live and work in Britain and threatened uh, obviously there are things in the pipeline you know there will be there will be it's not a question of reprisals but um i don't think there's any uh, doubt that government the government of britain like in europe and elsewhere you know then the, they will not allow um the islamic republic to intimidate um its own citizens or anyone else's Adam Bailey, lead media liaison at Volant Media, which owns Iran International TV. Thank you very much for joining us today. You are with Monocle 24. Leaders from all corners of the globe descended on Germany over the weekend for the Munich Security Conference, the world's leading forum for debating the most pressing challenges in international security. Among the attendees was Tania Fahon, Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs. She sat down with Monocle's Andrew Müller and the Foreign Desk team in Munich to discuss Slovenia's security priorities. Andrew began by asking whether maintaining some sort of dialogue with Russia right now is important and if it's even possible. I strongly condemn what is happening in Ukraine, the Russia brutal aggression, and I fully support everyone who is um, helping to defend um, Ukraine, the territory, the sovereignty, um, territorial integrity, because uh, Slovenia has the best historic mo- memory. What does it mean if someone by force takes your land away? We shall never allow that. And yesterday was a very clear statement of Kamala Harris saying um, this is a crime against humanity and the perpetrators have, have to be uh, brought to justice. I fully agree with that. Um, but we have to be aware that um, everyone wants to see peace. Ukraine wants to see peace. Uh, the world wants to see peace. And that means that we have to bring sides at the negotiating table as soon as possible. I'm pretty much aware that there are no conditions currently to start the talks for peace and that this war might take longer than we all want. But there has to be effort. Uh, We have to have these diplomatic efforts that everyone who can push Putin to stop the war and start negotiating has to do so. Ukraine has, of course, not been the only uh, subject discussed here. There there have been panels and discussions on um, Iran and Afghanistan, among others. And, of course, you were part of, and indeed seem to have a role in orchestrating, this recent joint statement by 10 female 
uh, foreign ministers uh, on Iran and Afghanistan. Obviously, the last people on earth who are going to listen to a statement by 10 female foreign ministers are the Taliban or the Ayatollahs. Uh, so what was the audience for that? statement. How do you hope that will make a difference to things? I think that was a very strong message because to have 10 foreign ministers together, not only from Europe, Mm -hmm. but bringing the topics that are not only concerning the war in Ukraine, but the women's rights. We have now, we should not forget what is happening around the globe. What we see in Afghanistan is that uh, women are excluded from the society. They are not allowed to go to the schools, to universities. They are not even allowed to work in human organizations that are absolutely needed. So what was our message was strong message let us support with solidarity women and let us do something. The same goes for Iran. And this is not the only effort. Um, I think women with our voice, uh, we (laughs) can be strong in influencing and doing a pressure where we don't have inequality or where we don't have equalities. And we have many conflicts around the world where we see that the women or the girls are first subject of being victims or of violence, of uh, sexual violence and so on. So we yesterday also created an informal platform where we will be exchanging, you know, our thoughts and our suggestions how to react when we see such um, things happening. Having left Afghanistan as the West has, and having therefore no practical influence on immediate day-to-day life in Afghanistan, what can be meaningfully done beyond statements of solidarity? Is there any material difference that anybody else is now in a position to make towards the lives of women yeah, in Afghanistan in particular? I was recently visiting uh, neighboring countries, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and there are a lot of discussion, also a lot of concerns what is happening in Afghanistan. And there are also initiatives how to organize some uh, conferences with international, you know, supervision to bring some um, stability in Afghanistan. This is something that is worrying and we are following it. So also the neighboring countries are being worried and we are working closely together. Any initiative that can provide long-lasting stability in the region is extremely important at that moment in time. So I think a lot is happening. A lot is happening between the countries in the region first, but also I think it will be necessary to bring topics high on the agenda also in the UN Security Council or in the General Assembly. I mean, it has been a thing that a few people we've spoken to this week and weekend rather have talked about, which is that attempt to get the global south on board in taking a stand against what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And one of the difficulties, as a few people have said, that for a lot of European countries trying to make this pitch to Africa in particular, there's a certain amount of fairly unhappy history, um, which does make possibly the African countries a bit reluctant to hear this sales pitch. Uh, Do you think a country like Slovenia is actually better placed potentially to make this case to the global south? there's, there's, There's no Slovenian empire you have to atone for. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we certainly don't owe 
to anyone as much as some maybe big global players um, have mm. to. We had a history of our former Yugoslavia that was a non-allied country, uh, which um, our African partners and friends um, like to, to remember and even remind us. And this is very important for them that we really don't, you know, that we can be a good listener, we can bring positions together, we can be an honest broker, or, or just because we had back in the history also for the African continent, which is very important, this uh, position of uh, being non-aligned. And in a way, you know, when you see all these global challenges that we are all facing around the world, I think for Slovenia being a, a small country, but uh, with an ambition, we can really also in the UN Security Council maybe easier bring different positions together. Because for us, it's extremely important that we respect the rules, that we respect the international law, UN Charter, that we are committed to these uh, fundamental rights. And uh, I hope we will convince our African partners. Um, some of them uh, we manage easier. Uh, we are a soft power, but we can be proud on our water diplomacy, our waste management, our humanitarian and development aid to the African continent. This is what we are doing. Um, you were speaking earlier, and you're quite right, about how in conflict women are very often the first among the most numerous and often the least discussed uh, victims of conflict. You've spoken of the idea of a, a feminist fo foreign policy. Is there an argument that female emancipation can be positioned as exactly that as well, that it makes a country stronger and it makes, in this particular case, a continent more resistant to the predations of a country like Russia? In all aspects, feminist foreign policy can be the answer. If you look to human resources, if you don't equally engage all parts of the societies, and here I'm thinking about the gender, uh, we have well-educated, well-skilled women. They have to be part of uh, the solution and not the problem. So when you see just uh, women, peace, security and uh, negotiations, statistics shows that women can be extremely successful bringing uh, different positions together in peace negotiations negotiations, and uh, they're really uh, very low represented. So there is a lot of place to bring women to parity in all foreign dimensions, um, when it comes to human resources, when it comes to negotiations for peace, when it comes just to bringing the societies um, on equal footing and giving empowerment to, to girls, giving empowerment to women, not only in pol politics, but be it in business, in all spheres of our society. So when we speak about feminist foreign policy, it's not a new concept. It's, it's basically nothing new, um, but it's something we, we have to understand that it's not given the women's rights are not given. And in many countries, even in Europe, the situation with women are deteriorating. I'm not speaking only about the violence, but when you have an economic crisis, when you have a war, women are those that are first affected. So that is why I think it's very important that we are also in foreign policy addressing equalities of women and girls all around the globe.
I just have a, a final question about, mm -hmm. I think, the, the slightly peculiar circumstance that Slovenia now finds itself in. We, we spoke to your new president as well this weekend, and that means by my calculations that Slovenia's president and Slovenia's foreign minister are both former journalists. And I, I, I have always, always thought that we are, as a trade, absolutely the last people who should ever be put in charge of anything at all. Um, so can you basically just please reassure our listeners that in this particular circumstance, at least, and especially our British listeners who've been learning a lot the hard way in recent years about what happens when you put a journalist in charge of the country, that it's basically going to be okay in Slovenia's case. Oh, but uh, maybe you are wrong. You can see <laughs> you can see a lot of former journalists being politicians. And I can tell you one thing journalism or journalists and politicians have in common. And this is if you know how to communicate well, then you can convince people. So, you know, uh, the journalist experience to me was a very, very useful in the way how to communicate even the most difficult or heaviest decisions. And being a politician and not knowing how to communicate or convince people, you can have even brilliant idea, but you will never manage to succeed. So I think uh, um, journalism um, and politics, are it's in a way connected. Um, but for me, that I was a journalism along in the EU, so in the institutions, um, in the following the EU integration, uh, the NATO integration um, and enlargement, I'm well familiar with the foreign policy. Um, so I was basically myself as a journalist already before with uh, one uh, foot in politics. So it's a good experience. I think it's reasonable continuation of your professional life. <laughs> that was Tanya Fahon, Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, speaking to Monaco's Andrew Müller at the Munich Security Conference. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Andrei Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday London time, 7am in Boston. I am Markus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>